trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hi, I'm John Hollis, and it's a pleasure to welcome you back to Access to Excellence. We're thrilled to be joined today by Mason's Justin Guest, who's an Associate Professor of Policy and Government within the Shar School of Policy and Government. He's a nationally recognized expert on matters such as comparative politics, immigration, and demographic change. In 2014 and in 2020, Professor Guest was recipient of Harvard University's Joseph R. Levinson Memorial Teaching Prize and the George Mason University Teaching Excellence Award. Each university highest awards for faculty teaching, and he received a slew of other accolades as well throughout his career. He's also the author of five books, one of the most relevant being Crossroads, Comparative Immigration Regimes in a World of Demographic Change, which examines immigration policies in more than 30 countries worldwide. Well, Justin, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, John. Thanks. Well, let's get right into it. First of all, immigration is again a hot button issue as we inch closer to November's presidential election. This has been a subject that politicians have struggled with for a long time, really without making much headway. Why is that? Yeah, it's an important question I think that a lot of people are asked. There seems to be one thing everyone can agree on, and that is that immigration policy in the United States is broken. How we fix it is a matter of a lot of debate. One of the reasons why it's subject to so much debate is because of the intensity of sentiment about immigration. For about three, four decades before the millennium, immigration was really a sort of backwater of of policy issues. Uh, It was very technical. It remains very technical today. It was something that only affected certain families acutely, people who were expecting family members to come, businesses that needed labor, and most other folks didn't really care much about it. However, over the course of the late 90s and the early 2000s, politicians from both sides of the aisle in the United States began to raise the salience of immigration in the scope of culture wars and identity politics to make it a really salient issue for national and even local politicians. And it was true of both sides. Democrats decreed the treatment of undocumented people, lobbied hard for access to benefits, touted the contributions that immigrants make to the U.S. economy and as contributors to their local societies. They tried to humanize uh, immigrants, both as a human rights issue, but also as a matter of, of national identity given the way immigrants have played, the role that immigrants have played in U.S. history. For Republicans, they made it salient as more of a national security issue, raising concerns about border security, raising concerns about immigrants uh, uh, from a perspective of, of them being more exploitative and being risks of crime and other forms of exploitation. These two perspectives are basically irreconcilable, and it has also resulted in an insane intensity gap where you have most of the country tends to agree with the core perspectives that the Democrats and most other left of center folks uh, advocate, but actually don't feel that strongly about immigration being an important issue. On the other hand, a smaller share of the country agree with the way Republicans have portrayed the issue from a national security perspective, but they believe the issue is the top, if not, or, or one of the top most important issues that the country is facing. And that matter of salience, that intensity of sentiment is what has driven the deadlock, the impasse politically. It's been estimated that, that there could be as many as 12 million undocumented residents in America. Is it even reasonable to think that deporting all or most of them is even a remote possibility? 
Well, anything is possible, I suppose, but it would, it, it really, it is so far-fetched that not just because it would be incredibly difficult because these are people who are deeply embedded and woven into the social fabric of the country and the economic fabric of the country and the cultural fabric of the country. But the sheer number of undocumented people in the United States would also be an enormous lift logistically and financially. It would cost an incredible amount of money that we all know for certain that would not actually be worth uh, the price tag that would be placed on it. And one of the things about the undocumented I think people don't recognize is that we have had the same number more or less of undocumented people in the United States for the last decade or so. And one of the reasons why is because the numbers are not getting much higher. Generally speaking, the undocumented primarily came from the late 1980s and 1990s with fewer and fewer people after 2000. And so the problem of the undocumented is actually a leftover problem. It's not one of urgency now because we don't have as many people entering the country without authorization or overstaying visas at the same rate that they once did. And so really dealing with the undocumented is not a matter of weeding out people who are new arrivals and somehow stitching up a a leaky border. It's actually one of dealing with a problem that is a legacy of the last 30 years. You've been adamant in the past that U.S. immigration policy is really kind of a relic of the past just because public opinions have changed so drastically over the last few decades. Can you talk a little bit about how they've changed and why that is? Well, it's not just that public opinion has changed. Public opinion has definitely changed and the country has become more progressive, more liberal about immigration uh, over the last 30 years. And it's become even more liberal, particularly on the Democratic side, since Donald Trump has taken office as president. But that's actually not the reason why the U.S. system appears to be a relic. The reason why it's a relic is simply because there are better policy ideas out there. The U.S. system has largely not changed much since landmark laws in 1965 and 1986. Little tweaks here and there, but the policies are almost 35 years old. And as with any industry or sector of the United States, any policy area, having policies that are dated 35 years back in a moving issue, literally moving people, isn't really a smart way of governing. So it's in a sort of policy formaldehyde, I've, I've called it. It's, it's just stuck in time. And it's because of this legislative impasse. Much of immigration policy must be legislated at the congressional level, at the national level. And because of the deadlock in the Capitol, that's why you're seeing presidents like Donald Trump or Barack Obama using executive actions in order to try to govern and change the policies to their preferences without while bypassing Congress. It's also why we see states and municipalities creating their own laws in the areas that, in which they have legal purview, uh, the sort of gaps in federal control. So really the relic of the system is that other countries simply manage immigration in more sophisticated manners than we do. Clearly this is an issue that needs to be addressed, but we're still a long ways as a nation from reaching any sort of consensus as you alluded to. Do you see any solution coming anytime soon? And as this hyper-partisanship we're seeing more in America these days, that made it even more unlikely? Yeah, that's right. I I think it's highly unlikely, actually. So Donald Trump has run on immigration being his principal issue. Recently, perhaps, there's been more of a focus on racial justice and national identity in, in, in America. But immigration, in many ways, is a sort of extension of that same core theme. 
And because he has made the, the issue so salient to his followers, the likelihood of the Republican caucus in Capitol Hill or any other Republicans around the country to lighten up on immigration when it's precisely the issue that they are hinging their political future to is unlikely. And so we're not likely to see compromise from them. At the same time, Democrats, even if the intensity is not there because Democrats are more focused on inequality gaps, health care, climate change, and other issues before immigration, they have still liberalized their views. And so parties are going in different directions right now as to what they wish, and the appetite for consensus is really low in a hyper-politicized and hyper-polarized society. The further issue is that immigration is going to be very low on the list of priorities for a would-be Biden administration. So we know what a Trump administration would do on immigration. It's largely executive actions. He's barely attempted anything on Capitol Hill. But if Biden were to be elected in November, then he's going to have so many bigger fish to fry with COVID, with the economic disaster that it's been and and the decline, the health crisis, that immigration is going to be very low on his list of priorities. Even though he insists that he will try, he's unlikely to want to spend enormous amounts of political capital on an issue that's so divisive, particularly if he really does see himself as a unifying influence on American society. You touched on some of the current administration's policies. But others like separating immigrant families at the border, locking kids in cages, and even expanding the border wall with Mexico, have those things hurt the quest for real long-term immigration reform? What those actions have done, have done is they have polarized public opinion more. So in these actions, they are acts that are largely symbolic. Some of them have grave and acute impacts, such as the separation of families and the detention of children at the border. Those are not symbolic or not just symbolic. Those actually have acute impacts. The border wall is a symbolic matter. There was really no obvious need to extend the border wall, particularly because more sophisticated methods of border control are available. So the wall was actually just a physical symbol that demonstrated a sort of fortress in the United States that was averse to the entry of foreigners. So with the sort of use of these symbolic and sensational policy choices by the Trump administration, they have evidence suggests, public public opinion evidence suggests that they have riled up his main constituency inside the Republican Party and given them some sort of red meat to be satisfied by, given his campaign promises about being tough on border security. But in actuality, the public opinion data actually also demonstrates that it has made Democrats' opinion, which used to be far more moderate on immigration, much more progressive, much more liberal and open-minded to the legalization, the regularization of undocumented immigrants, bringing in more people annually for labor visas and on family visas, openness to all kinds of other forms of immigration and the fair treatment of immigrants once they're here. And so there has been a backlash to Trump from the opposing party side, even while it satisfies the demand from inside of his own caucus. Well, obviously, every country is free to regulate immigration as it sees fit. But is it possible if the U.S. could ever adopt immigration policies that are more like Canada or Australia, where a merit-based system is used to rank potential immigrants on criteria such as language skills, education, or employment history? Could we ever see something like that? 
We could see something like that, and I, th- I hope we do. I, I think that points-based systems and merit-based systems are a good idea so long as we recognize merit in a variety of ways. Traditionally, points-based systems primarily recognize merit in the form of credentials and, and for, for labor and, and, and skills. But of course, immigrants bring virtues way beyond you know, what they can do for a living. They bring social capital, they bring innovation, they bring entrepreneurship, they bring family unity, unity, uh, which is very important for for American society and our social fabric. In some cases, it's a virtue to be vulnerable because we want to continue the legacy, I think, of the United States being a shelter for those being persecuted. And so if we can recognize the value of bringing people in, in ways beyond and in addition to the skill set people bring, I think that would be a fantastic idea. I wrote a piece about this actually for Politico that was uh, called Immigration Moneyball, using the predictive analytics that we see in baseball and other sports to predict which immigrants are going to be the greatest contributors to the United States. And I do think that there are humane and intelligent ways to do that. It is unlikely that it will be done in the immediate future, but there is bipartisan support among Democratic and Republican centrists, among moderates, pro-business moderates who like these ideas. Where you have more resistance is on the far right, which doesn't want any new immigration, broadly speaking, and on the far left, which wants to preserve the family unification-based visa system that we currently have and are concerned that points-based systems could replace family immigrants with labor immigrants, which does not actually have to be the case, as I explain in a lot of my work. So the Canadian and Australian systems, which are much more sophisticated than ours and actually allow many more immigrants than ours in a much more secure fashion than ours, really do look like paragons. And bills have been floated by Democrats and Republicans in the Capitol, but they have yet to go anywhere. Do we already have in some ways systems like that in industries like farming and construction? Not really. You do have visas that are tied to employment offers and implicitly visas in those industries are recognizing shortages in, in labor or skills. And so they may have the same sort of spirit behind them, but the actual system to select and admit immigrants is, is really far different and much more basic. Other parts of the world rely on tougher and far less lenient immigration policies. Where do you think the U.S. eventually lands? And does the move away from, or potential move away from family-based immigration, what does that say about where America is as a nation? Well, I don't think that we should look at family migration quite as moralistically as we tend to. It's a wonderful thing to reunify families, yes, and uh, it has made immigration a very personal matter for a long time. My wife came in on a family visa. Dear friends uh, have close family members that have entered on family visas. It's, it's a wonderful thing to have. But these immigrants, these family immigrants, are not merely family members. They work, too. They have jobs. They possess skills. They innovate. They employ people. They do lots of things rather than just work at the job, uh, than, than just come in as family members and just you know, remain as family members. They are human beings, and so they're multidimensional. So I think that it's important that we, we alter the way we think of immigrants in, into a multidimensional space to reconsider how we view family immigrants. What was the first part of your question, John, though? Where do you think the U.S. eventually lands on this policy? Yeah, it's, it's very hard to say right now. If the Republican Party 
moderates its views on immigration, which eventually I think it will need to, if it's going to appeal to non-white voters, which it has lost many of over the last 20 years, as the U.S. diversifies demographically, if the Republican Party moderates, then we could see some compromises around the center. And if immigration simply becomes less intensely politicized, we could see more compromises. But that is a a good decade away, I think, right now, because I don't think that the Republican Party is going to moderate even if Trump loses the upcoming election, because he has whet the appetite for many Republican constituents for visions of immigration that are far more restrictive than we have seen. And as I mentioned, he has also polarized left-wing public opinion in such a way that they're not moving further to the right at the same time. Over the years, this country has progressed to the point that very few explicit biases we see. But what are some of the ways that immigration policy can have implicitly discriminate in the form of race or sex? Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time since immigration policies were, at least in Western and industrialized democratic countries, were overtly racialized. Back in the day, there were literacy tests. There were ethnic quotas associated with certain countries. There were racialized policies that actually labeled people according to their, their constructed racial identity. Gone are those days. But there are legacies of implicit bias in in certain ways that do remain. From a labor migration perspective, many of the skills that countries identify as high-skilled, as desirable, are gendered in the sense that the skills that we tend to value are in professions that are predominantly or disproportionately held by men. So as a result, those laws favor male immigrants because they possess the skills that are deemed to be desirable and they undervalue skills that are disproportionately held by women. And there's really good work on this by a variety of people, including my co-author, Anna Boucher from the University of Sydney, who's written an entire book on this actually. Racially, the points-based systems that we were just discussing, John, are interesting because they are not explicitly racialized whatsoever. But because points-based systems are so credential-focused, so focused on, on skill certificates and credentials, those credentials are much more common in countries outside of the developing world. And the developing world is predominantly of black, made up of black and brown people. So as a result, those policies implicitly discriminate against people with those ethnic and racial backgrounds because they are less able to get those credentials. And so it's not overt, but it is sort of covert. And again, I don't want to suggest that there's malevolence like Canada or Australia is intending to discriminate. It's just a byproduct of those policies. Another reason why I think it's important that we seek out merit and understand merit in broad terms beyond just skill credentials. How did America fall so far behind the rest of the world with immigration, Justin? I mean, this certainly wasn't always the case. If you think about it historically, America used to lead the world in the sense that it was the first actor, the first mover on immigration to regulate it, to regulate immigration. Some of the earliest immigration laws were made by the United States. However, leading the world is a little uh, dubious of an achievement because the way we led the world was with immigration acts like the Chinese Exclusion Act, 
which literally racially ex- excluded people from China. <laughs> so, you know, some policies, sometimes it's good to be the first to do something. Other times it's embarrassing. Uh, it's not a wonderful legacy that we have uh, from the 1882 Act that effectively barred people from China and other East Asian countries. So in some cases, there are advocates, particularly those on the left, on the politically left, who believe that it's a good thing that we are anachronistic because we're maintaining more humane policies while the rest of the world is shifting to more labor migration, which they don't think is as humane because we are commoditizing um, uh, people uh, as, uh, as capital. The alternative perspective is that there are ways of managing it so that you can remain humane and at the same time try to do things that are economically strategic. And, you know, openness itself John, is a, is a matter of interpretation. Because on the one hand, many people think of the United States as being very open to immigration. But we have about 13, 14% of the country right now is born in another country. A country like Switzerland or Australia is at 29, 30%, more than double the share of their country is born in another, in another country which is really remarkable and puts things into stark perspective. And they have very humane policies and yet remain very open. And Australia, in Australia's case, they're very labor oriented. And then you have countries like those of the Arabian Gulf region. UAE uh, in particular. Yeah, the UAE, Qatar, Kuwait, where you have more than 50% of their population is born in another country. And of course, they don't have access to citizenship in the same way that they would have in Australia, Switzerland, or the United States. And many people have condemned the way that they govern immigration as inhumane for a variety of reasons that we probably don't have time to go into right now. But in terms of openness, they have far more immigrants per capita than any other country in the world. They're remarkably open in terms of admissions. They're just very closed when it comes to citizenship and the rights that immigrants are, are handed when they arrive. So openness is really in the eye of the beholder. The United States looks relatively closed compared to Switzerland, Australia, the UAE, or Qatar. But it all depends on how you see it. There have been a lot of studies, Justin, including ones by Mason's Institute for Immigration Research that show immigration is really a net gain for the country. It not only helps the economy, but provides expertise, for the most part, with people who are more law-abiding than even natural-born Americans. How and why has that message gotten lost? Yeah, in study after study after study after study, the contributions of immigrants are explicitly clear in the United States. The only area where we see wage competition is at the absolute lowest rungs of the wage ladder. And often the competition is between new immigrants and older immigrants, and not so much uh, native-born Americans. So generally speaking, immigration is a gigantic net gain for the country. You know, you have a disproportionate number of immigrants who file patents, who are innovating, who run businesses and own businesses. You have a disproportionate number that are economically mobile, moving up in income. And you see a faster mobility generation on generation among immigrants. Their contributions to society are pretty much unquestioned. It's not an issue of communication. This has been communicated a lot ad nauseum. People are aware that immigrants do well here and are major contributors. However, it's not persuasive because we have failed, we as a country have failed to persuade native born Americans that they are also important, that they also are valuable, that they are also contributing. 
We are so busy touting the contributions of immigrants. I think that we have alienated and, and made many white Americans feel marginalized. And this is the subject of other parts of my work that we haven't really discussed as much on white working class politics. The sense of loss amongst white working class people, the sense of devaluation and underestimation is profound. And it is that that is producing much of the backlash, much of the nativism against immigration. So we can continue to communicate the virtues of immigrants all we want, but unless we make our society feel truly inclusive of everybody, whether they're black, brown, white, from this country or from another country of whatever faith or sexuality they want, we are going to have these divisive identity politics. How damaging has it been to the inability to formulate a cohesive policy and how, how much will it continue to be detrimental to the U.S. economy and to U.S. stature around the world? Well, until recently, the United States, no matter how much people resented us around the world as a hegemon, as an empire, you know, no matter how much people found us to be arrogant, perhaps, or domineering, pushy, ignorant, whatever they thought, the worst things they could say about us. There was a silver lining that people understood that the United States was ultimately a place that was a reflection of the rest of the world because we have been a destination for the world for such a long time. They, in, inside the eyes of the United States, others outside could see themselves. And that was a very important source of what's called soft power, the kind of power to persuade when you don't have guns or weapons or money available. That soft power was immensely useful diplomatically for generations. And if we close off the country and appear less tolerant, less interested in the world around us, we risk losing that soft power. And, and I think that we already have. The United States looks like a very closed, angry giant right now, much different from the sort of friendly and at least apparently, evidently open country that it once was. It actually leads to my last question. Like how do the current immigration policies affect U.S. reputation around the world? You kind of touched on that as the U.S. looks angry. That can have long lasting ramifications as well. Well, I, I don't know how long the consequences will endure because People also around the world know that U.S. presidents change and U.S. leadership changes and that U.S. public opinion changes. And they understand that it's dynamic. And I think that new administrations, if they want to, can change that public image of the United States in a way that could either revert it back to where it was, at least in some way, or at least change it, evolve it further so that we complicate the reputation of the United States. You know, even early in the Trump administration, diplomats from other countries were not quick to judge the country on the basis of what Trump says, because they realized that he represents a share of the country, but not the entire country. Indeed, he didn't even win a majority of the votes in the 2016 election uh, nationally. So they recognized that there was diverse public opinion out there. And so a lot of other countries thought that they could wait him out and hopefully do damage control to their relationship with the United States. And I think that that hope remains. But at some point, other countries are going to deal with the United States, whether it's in a diplomatic matter, conflict, trade, or other regards. 
eventually the rubber is going to hit the road and there is going to have to be some kind of reckoning with the new reputation of the United States in our relations with other countries. It has already happened, but four years over the course of history is a rather small amount of time. Well, Justin, I really appreciate the closer look at immigration. I want to thank you for being here with us today here at Access to Excellence. That's going to do it for us. But again, I want to thank you and I wish you the best of luck for everything ahead. Mason Nation, stay safe. We'll see you next time. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.